In this episode, rising football star, but he gave it all up after suffering a series of concussions. One of the biggest changes to sport in the last decade is a recognition about the importance of head injuries. For the first time, researchers have detected a protein linked to CTE. An autopsy has confirmed experimental tests that detected CTE. The NCAA has decided to do the largest study ever done in the history of concussion. But some of the universities claiming to be leaders in the field of research? No data, no data, no data. I'm honestly shocked that they claim to not have that data. That is very, very surprising. From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. For a few years now, the narrative coming from universities is that sports, particularly football, are safer than ever. We're promoting a better, safer game. But we've never really seen the numbers. Are concussions actually happening less than they were before? The logical way of answering this question is to look at the aggregate data. Were there actually fewer head injuries in the 2019 season than there were 10 years ago? So we asked. About 100 public universities across the country, we asked them for their aggregate numbers, broken down by sport for the last 10 years. And if they didn't have the data for 10 years, we said, that's okay. Just give us as many years as you've got. So if they didn't start tracking until, say, three years ago, we still want to see that. I'm going to cut to the chase here. The answer is really unsatisfying. We just don't know if head injuries are declining. And the reason we don't know is that more than one-third of the major universities that we asked, and I'm talking about major conference powerhouses, they don't know either. They don't know because they're not tracking it. Hi, Joe. Are you ready? Hi, Sarah. Yes, I'm ready. Joe Hastings is the reporter for this episode. Joe, you filed a lot of these requests for information. Tell me what you got back. We saw some really inconsistent data. On the whole, universities are all over the place with how they track head injuries. Some don't track by sport, some don't track by year. It's hard to see real trends because there is no consistency. Some schools gave us really helpful information. Some schools gave us information for only football. Ten universities just flat out ghosted us. They didn't respond at all. And a really surprising number of universities responded, but said they had nothing to share. They simply don't track head injury trends. I'm going to be honest. This was really surprising and not at all what I expected to see, that so many public universities are not tracking head injuries in the most basic way. Yes, and that includes some large, well-known schools, like the University of North Carolina, the University of Michigan, and UCLA, Ohio State, three major Florida schools, Florida State, the University of Florida, and Central Florida had no data. Also, Indiana University, Purdue University, Texas A&M, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, schools you routinely hear about because of their major football programs. Zero record of concussions. I mean, that seems, I don't know, improbable. It was pretty shocking to see. And of course, it is definitely not accurate. We know concussions happen, and often, 
It's because they are covered by the media. Alex does have a concussion. Um, Talked about by coaches. Just this time of year, I think everybody got bumps and bruises. And so for a university to say they have no aggregate data, what that really means is they're not looking at overall trends. The only thing they have to go by when saying things like the game is safer than ever are isolated cases. And for some of these universities, the isolated examples certainly do not make their case. I immediately thought of the University of Michigan, which told us, your request is denied because responsive records do not exist. But when you Google Michigan and concussions, this is what comes up. A September 2014 game where quarterback Shane Morris gets a pretty bad concussion, live on TV. It's a play almost painful to watch. It's a game versus Minnesota. Michigan is losing badly. So badly, there's basically no chance of making a comeback. And starting quarterback Shane Morris is limping on his left leg. You can hear the play-by-play -play announcers for ESPN reacting to his injuries. As Morris couldn't step into that one, trying to get the ball out to Funches. And Morris can't move. He, he's having a hard time with that left leg. When I was watching this, it seems like a painful amount of time goes by, where Morris is limping around the field, clearly in pain. Yes, and that's the same reaction the announcers were having. And then Minnesota defensive lineman De'Aaron Cochran hits Morris powerfully near his head, and Shane Morris falls to the ground. You've got to eject De'Aaron Cochran. That is targeting. He drops his head. He launches. You see him put his hands around his helmet and just lay there for a few seconds on the field. But to everyone's surprise, Michigan head football coach Brady Hoke leaves him in for one more play. This, as you can imagine, just leaves everybody stunned. So another quarterback comes in for the next few plays, but then his helmet comes off during the first down run. An NCAA rule says he has to sit out at least one play. So back into the game comes Morris. Morris just basically hands off the ball and limps back to the sideline. At the press conference after the game, head coach Brady Hoke says, Guys play beat up every day. If they're not beat up a little bit, they're never 100%, then we need to, uh, then uh, they're not doing much. Michigan later admits that Morris suffered a probable mild concussion and a high ankle sprain. And athletic director Dave Brandon apologized for the fact that he came back into the game. By the end of the season, the athletic director resigned and the head coach was fired. So when we asked Michigan for a record of concussions, Michigan said there are no responsive records. But I mean, this was so high profile. Are they saying there is no record of this? Well, there might be in Morris's file, a record of his injuries. 
but there is no overall tabulation of concussions for the team for that year. In fact, when we pressed Michigan on this, they confirmed that they do not keep track of concussions that way. The way that these public records requests work, it's literally a document request, not an information request. So if Michigan doesn't keep track of overall concussions this way, they are not required to create a record by, say, going into individual player files and counting. And that's a scenario that played out over and over again at many schools of all sizes. But the other scenario that played out over and over again is that all but two of the universities that said they had no record like this, we were quickly and easily able to find news reports showing they had plenty of concussions. Originally will be out this game. It was earlier in the game that um, he injured he continued to play. Their players are concussing. They're just not keeping track of the overall trends. Some of the most surprising examples, I'd say, are the ones where universities claim to have big concussion research clinics. UNC comes to mind. Yes, and Ohio State, too. The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center is shaping the future of medicine. Ohio State told us they did not have any records, yet there was a highly publicized stretch in the fall of 2018 where several Buckeye football players were suffering concussions. Just after, after that Purdue game, you know what I mean? I just felt bad I couldn't be there for my, for my boy. And that UNC... We have the accelerometers in our helmet. We're able to measure the impacts on their heads. Uh, UNC touts one of the best concussion research programs in the country. This is Larry Fedora, who was the head football coach for six years, talking to the press in July 2018. Uh, we've got Kevin Gusowitz, who's one of the leaders in uh, studying concussions across this country. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, the uh, retired players from the NFL come to Chapel Hill. To be, uh, Meanwhile, they also have no aggregate record. So they can't see if the concussion rate is going up or down with their own players. During that time, you know, I had extreme headaches and dizziness. Um, I just couldn't operate my everyday life. Um, we know that at least three players had concussions during the time frame in which they claimed they have no data to share. And we know this because, again, they were high profile enough to be covered by the media. Probably the most high profile example. I'm uh, Tommy Hatton. Thanks for coming out. And I'm is Tommy Hatton. Tommy Hatton was a four-star recruit coming out of high school, won Rookie of the Week in his redshirt freshman season at UNC. He had a promising football career ahead of him, but by 2017, he had suffered four concussions. This is what he told Fox Business host Stuart Varney in an interview in 2018. I couldn't go to class. I had to wear glasses inside. I mean, that's very extreme, like, circumstances. Um, a concussion can last just a week of having mild headaches, but um, mine was very extreme. He decides to hang up his cleats. Quit football? Yes, and focus on his health. Football's such a reactionary game. Um, I think concussions are impossible to eliminate. But again, UNC told us they had no responsive documents. Right. And it's even more intriguing because a lot of these schools are part of larger research studies where institutions come together to share data and study head injuries. There is a Big Ten Ivy League study, which Purdue, Indiana, and Minnesota, all who didn't provide us records, are a part of. And then there's an even bigger partnership between the NCAA and the U.S. Department of Defense. It's called the CARE Consortium. It's really a unique uh, collaboration. It, it, it's really only one of its kind. Bringing all this expertise from across the country and only the NCAA can...
It stands for Concussion Assessment Research and Education. And the goal is to study participants to assess long-term effects of concussions and exposure to repetitive head impacts. There are 30 colleges across the country who participate, and three of them, Michigan, UNC, and UCLA, all told us they had no data. So wait, let me make sure I have this straight. Three schools that are supposed to be providing data to this care consortium in order to help concussion research move forward all told us that they don't actually have any data. So it's a little complicated because the consortium is a voluntary program for athletes. But you would think that universities that are participating in this huge effort to see how concussions affect players over a lifetime would also have the structure to keep basic data about how many concussions were happening each year. Some places, like the University of Washington, which is also a part of the consortium, they did provide us with data. But it was really surprising to see that's not the case with many others. For the record, we reached out to all 32 schools that told us that they had no data to share, and we asked them why that is. One school, Georgia Southern, ended up providing the data after all, but from the rest, honestly, we didn't get very many explanations. Most schools just doubled down, saying they don't have anything to share. A few places, like Georgia, Florida State, and Purdue, told us they couldn't share the information for privacy reasons. Florida State went even as far as to say, the manner in which we track is protected health information. Wait, so they're trying to say that the way that they track is protected? I mean, we're not asking for identifying information here. We're just asking for a number. That's not protected health information. Right. And I think it's important to mention something about player injuries and privacy. People might be listening to this thinking that universities are holding back this information because of HIPAA, the Privacy Act related to healthcare. But there are two reasons that's not true. For one, HIPAA doesn't apply to non-identifiable information. So telling us that the football team had, say, 15 concussions this year and 30 last year, that's not revealing personal medical information. The second reason that explanation fails is that every student athlete in the country signs a waiver allowing universities to talk about their injuries. Just think about it. You hear coaches talk about injuries during press conferences every single day, all season long. It's a major, major part of how the sport is covered. There was one answer for why data can't be shared that really stood out to me. It came from the largest university in the country, the University of Central Florida. Although Central Florida is a public institution in a state with some of the best record laws in the country, there is a way for universities to hide records, and it's done by creating private foundations, which function practically as an arm of the university, but because they are private on paper, they don't need to respond to records requests. In this case, the private foundation at UCF is the Athletic Association. UCF flat out told us that the records that we wanted are part of the Athletic Association and therefore they are not public. We're going to talk about this broader issue a little later in the season, how public universities are creating private entities to provide cover from public scrutiny, but it's worth mentioning in this episode because of the hypocrisy of this particular situation at the University of Central Florida. Sure, a redshirt freshman was rushed to the hospital after in 2008, a UCF football player dropped dead on the practice field. 
His name was Eric Plancher. 19-year-old player Eric Plancher collapsed. Player is dead after off-season conditioning drills on campus. The university's coaching and training staffs were responsible for his death during practice in 2008. His family sued the university's athletic association, but lost. Why? The association claimed it was immune from litigation because it's a public state institution, and state institutions are immune from litigation. So when it's convenient, UCF's athletic association is private. And when it's convenient, it's also not private. Our research shows that this is the case in several states. This is Why Don't We Know? We couldn't have made this podcast without research and reporting help from students at the University of Florida. You can help support them by making a donation to our student scholarship fund. You can find the information on our website at www.whydontweknow.org. Let's go back eight years to a moment that really changed the way that society views head injuries. For 20 years, he was a warrior on the field. The big thing that really caused everyone to wake up to the problem of head injuries? Junior Seau, the monster in the middle, a defensive icon who's devastating hits, more than 1,850 tackles in his career, knocked out opponents. Was the death of Junior Seau. She returned to the residence to find Mr. Seau unconscious, suffering from a gunshot wound to the chest. Seau was a former NFL player, a star athlete, and he took his own life at the age of 43. But after his sudden and shocking suicide, some speculating he knew his brain needed to be preserved for examination. His family donated his brain to the National Institutes of Health following his death. A team of doctors confirmed that he suffered from degenerative brain disease, which could be linked to the years he spent taking blows and giving them on the football field. And they found that he had something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's commonly known now as CTE, but back then, almost no one had heard of it. I remember this so vividly because at the time, I was one of those people who hadn't heard of CTE. But Junior Seau really became a household name. Seau's death was a huge wake-up call, and it caused major change in the sport. Praising a settlement over the concussion lawsuit. Payout is $765 million over 20 years. Within a year, the NFL agreed to a $765 million settlement with more than 4,500 retired players who accused the league of not revealing a link between traumatic brain injuries and professional football. That then sparked a national conversation about head trauma in sports, and it trickled down to the collegiate level and to youth sports, too. Parents began voicing concerns about their children participating in football. Yes, and the NFL launched a Heads Up Football program, which emphasizes a smarter and safer way to play and teach youth football. And it wasn't just football. Seau's death created awareness in any sport where someone is prone to suffering repeated head injuries, that this could have lifelong effects. Since Seau's death, the science around head injuries has certainly improved, and general awareness has too. But after we saw that there's no data to show that, at least at the college level, football is safer than ever, we started to look for other trends. If we can't see head injury trends, what can we see? Surveys conducted by the National Trainers Association over the last 10 years show that year after year, trainers report that coaches push them to put players back into the game after head injuries. 
And even though progress has been made from a medical standpoint, the numbers indicate that progress isn't being made from a cultural standpoint. Seven years ago, about half of trainers said that they felt pressure by football coaches to clear players who weren't medically ready. Just last year in 2019, that number went up by 8%. In addition, 19% of trainers said coaches are playing players who aren't medically cleared. The numbers actually got worse. Joe and I talked a little bit about this, about how cultural changes are still very much needed at the college level. One really good example of that actually happened a couple of years ago at UNC. Again, a school that said they had no data. Former head football coach Larry Fedora faced a lot of criticism for comments he made relating to head injuries and football during a press conference in 2018. But the game is better than it's ever been, and I believe the game's under attack right now. I really do. And uh, if we're not careful, you know, we're going to lose what the real, what the game is all about. Who do you think is, to use your word, attacking the game? Uh, well. <laughs> Blaming us? No, I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming anybody. I, I, I blame a, a groundswell of, uh, of uh, data that is uh, tweaked one way or the other because I can take the data and I can make it look one way. You can take the data and make it look another way. And whoever's presenting it is the one that gets to say so. What was really controversial about the situation is that Fedora later said he wasn't convinced there's a link between football and CTE. Here's what he said when clarifying those comments. CTE and football relationship. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of clarify exactly where your thoughts are on that. I, I don't know if you you know if, if clarification is the right word. It's more about you know what I said and and you know I'm not sure that anything is proven that football itself causes it. So if anyone's wondering if this is really still a problem, it is. Joe, you talked to a couple of the schools that are part of these big research studies, schools that did provide us with data. One of them is Rutgers University. From the data you got back, it looked like theirs was probably the most comprehensive. And really by that, what I mean is it's what you would think any university would want to have in order to keep track of head injuries in a complete way. That's right, Sarah. And the other school is the University of Washington. Both schools really stood out in terms of the data they provided us. And so I decided to call them and chat with them about how this data is beneficial, how it helps them do a better job protecting athletes. This is so important because in reporting with you for this episode, I did hear from people who would say things like, why is this even necessary? Why does it matter if all of this data is compiled in one central spreadsheet? And these people explain that. That's right. Let's start with Rutgers. My name is uh, Kyle Burstrand. Uh, I'm an athletic trainer at Rutgers University. I also am the coordinator of concussion management and research. Kyle told me that in 2014, when he started at Rutgers, there really was no tracking system in place. There was no data collected on an epidemiological scale. Um, It was more of a uh, individual case-by-case basis. The physicians would handle individual concussions and uh, the athletic trainers would handle the visual concussions uh, together, and they would handle that. All that data would just be collected in the student-athlete's medical record. Uh, 
That sounds like it's in line with what a lot of schools told us they are doing right now. Yes, but what Kyle said is that when Rutgers began participating in research around 2015, they realized there was a huge benefit to tracking head injuries by the numbers, to see how many were occurring in each sport and when. And they found that tracking head injuries as a whole had a huge added benefit for their student-athletes as individuals. I can just say for what we would do at Rutgers University is just you know, try and be, try and be detailed, um, see if we can find trends, see how we can, you know, help our student athletes on a day-to-day -day basis and, and just try and make what we do at Rutgers uh, athletics safer. He explains why. You know, it's, it's sure tough for, um, for coaches to change, you know, practices, right? Mm -hmm. They want to see the, the practice of how, you know, how they play. So they want to see, you know, results and they want to see data in front of them. So if we're able to tell a coach that, hey, during this specific drill, you had a a high frequency of, of concussions, a disproportionate amount of concussions, then uh, that might be a way to make your practice safer. And, and to put it in there, you know, to, I'm sure they obviously are, they care about the students, but they also think about, you know, days lost for student athletes as far as practicing and getting better. So they want to think of it that way. So if there's something that, you know, they can change um, that is, uh, that will allow them to practice safer and to keep guys healthy, um, they will do that. This is a really important point. This isn't really so much about making this data public to people like us. It's about universities having this data for themselves so they can deliver on their promises to keep athletes safe. We didn't ask these schools to create these documents just for our benefit. That's not how public records requests work. We asked them for the documents they already have. And if they didn't provide them, well, that means they aren't tracking head injuries in this way. And the people who that really hurts the most are the student athletes. The other school that collected some good data, the University of Washington, when I listened to your interview with the athletic director for health and wellness, I thought he brought up a really interesting point about what happens if we stop making progress on this issue? What happens if we can't make these sports safer? That's such a big part of why this is so important. How do we move forward? If universities are still resistant to tracking this data, here's what Robert Scheidegger told me. Those things, you got to start somewhere. These mild traumatic brain injuries or what people call concussion, those are really difficult to diagnose and, and they still have yet to identify a, a gold standard for, you know, doing a diagnostic test. Right now, we're just trying to be a part of the solution by gathering as much information as we possibly can. And we want to keep going down that road because we want people participating in sports. We want people being active. We want people to grow up feeling safe and feeling like it's, it, you know, it's okay to have their kids participate in all different types of sports, whatever they're interested in, because we know how valuable sports are to our society and to the development of children and to the development of like young adults and all the lessons that can be learned there. So what we want to do is, is continue to try to create as much safe environment for sport participation as we possibly can. Joe, we've been talking a lot about football, which I know is a very important thing to do when discussing head injuries because of the nature of the sport. But what about the other sports teams, maybe the ones that are not revenue generating? How are they affected by this? It's a really important question because so many of the resources have been focused on football. And we saw this in the data. Some universities said that we can give you information, but we only keep data for one sport, and that's football. So for the rest, we have nothing to hand over. With everything that we know about head injuries, you'd think that any athletic program would want to know if the numbers in sports other than football are trending up or trending down. 
maybe in a sport where you might not expect it to see if you need to hire more staff or better equipment or have different protocols in place. Yes, and some universities might have that kind of surveillance program in place. Maybe a very good concussion monitoring program in place for a revenue-generating team like football, but not for a team that isn't as popular. And in fact, we saw a perfect example of that at the University of Texas. It took over my life, but in a, in a good way. I think cheer really shaped who I am today. When we sent out a request to Texas for the numbers of concussions of their athletes for the last 10 years, they responded by telling us they only kept data for football. That means there's no way for them to see if head injuries are trending upward or downward in other sports. But that doesn't mean there isn't a risk for other athletes who, for the purposes of this data, are essentially invisible. I did competitive cheer. If you think of like that Netflix show, Cheer, that everyone is watching right now, um, that is what I grew up doing. We talked to one, Caitlin Benke. She was a University of Texas cheerleader between 2013 and 2015. But before Caitlin even arrived on campus, she had suffered three documented concussions. The first one came in her freshman year of high school. My very first one. But starting sophomore year, the head injuries were piling up. I suffered one spring of, yeah, of 2015, and then I got two more. When Caitlin quit cheer, she thought she had concussed five times. I got three within seven months um, in 2015, kind of between spring and summer, and that was what really set me into my post-concussion syndrome. But when she talked to her doctors about her symptoms and her medical history... Um, so all of the force of four girls throwing one girl in the air um, went right into my jaw, um, dislocated my jaw, and gave me another concussion. She realized she had suffered probably many more that went undiagnosed and untreated while she was in high school and college. So that one was never diagnosed by a doctor then? No. And actually, the uh, third one was not either. What about some of your other teammates? Do you recall them uh, suffering any concussions or even any other student-athletes at the University of Texas at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean... I remember at one time having three or four girls out with concussions um, at practice. It's kind of part of the nature of cheerleading. It's very dangerous and trying new things and everything. So it sounds like there are a lot of reasons why Caitlin's head injuries went untreated. Right. And Caitlin doesn't blame anyone in particular for that. I think people sometimes want to have someone to blame for, you know, things like this. And people tend to go to the universities um, and... Maybe that's true in most cases, I have no idea, but in my case, uh, UT really took care of me. Um, I would say that the knowledge in general just wasn't there, so like no one knew to keep me out longer. Or you know, like um, at one point I got, you know, I got that concussion in February of 2015, and then I hit my head at a practice about two or three months later. And it was kind of like, you know, we'll watch her. And looking back, you know, I've had doctors tell me, yes, I should have sat out after that for a while again. Um, and I didn't, but no one knew that. I mean, the, the like athletic trainers at the time just didn't have that information. I started getting gut symptoms, you know, like food sensitivities. Well, we had no idea that those were probably related to the concussions um, because I hadn't seen someone about them. You know, there's just a lot of, a lot of clarity that probably could have come from seeing someone and addressing it at the moment, but you know, without doing that, your brain just does what it can to compensate, maybe never actually healing. Caitlin is only 26 years old, but she says her doctors estimate she's had more concussions than most people. 
somewhere between 7 and 11. For me, it got to a point where it was just so easy to get a concussion. Um, actually, so your second concussion, you're three times more likely to get one. After your second one to get your third one, you're eight times more likely. So it just keeps going up from there. I ended up just hitting my head on a metal door one time, standing up too fast and got a concussion that way just because my brain was so susceptible to injury at that point. So yeah, I ended up getting a couple outside of cheer. Um, you know, I wouldn't have gotten them without the ones in cheer though, I think. Her story really highlights the need for more research. I mean, when she talks about trainers not knowing to keep her out long enough to heal, I'm really curious to know, what was Caitlin's reaction when you told her that none of her concussions or any of her teammates' concussions at Texas were being tracked? Yeah, so here's that part of our conversation. This next question here, it's, um, it's going to be a little bit prolonged, and just mm -hmm. interrupt me if, if I need to clarify anything, but... um. So essentially, with this podcast project that we're doing here, we send out roughly 100 Freedom of Information Act requests uh, to different universities, with one of them being the University of Texas at Austin. Um, and essentially, I'm going to read you kind of um, quote by quote mm -hmm. what we asked for. Uh, we sent out on September 24, 2019, uh, requesting any tabulations or documents reflecting the number of concussions reported affecting student athletes for the last 10 calendar years specific to each sport or if 10 years of data was not available any information matching the description in bullet point one we were able to receive response from ut austin uh, they said that the data we requested was not routinely routinely collected by the intercollegiate athletics here at the university and then they said that the only existing data that they had regarding student athlete concussions in the past five seasons 2014 through 2018 of data was for the sport of football. Now that's a long question uh, or a long. Uh, no, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you understand everything that I just said there? What was kind of like your reaction to that uh, University of Texas uh, response? I think that's crazy. I mean, um, yeah, I think. I mean, I guess I, I, on the one hand, I think that's crazy, and on the other hand, I get it. Um, it's really hard to implement a system like that in a school of 52,000 people. And so, you know, so I understand resistance to it, but I do think that they still need to do it, of course. I mean, that's, it's crazy that they haven't as um, a school in the Big 12 and all of you, I mean, such a power athletic university. Um, I'm honestly shocked that they claim to not have that data. That is very, very surprising. Caitlin Benke has now started a company called Concussion Network with the goal of helping people like her who are in post-concussion syndrome and don't know where to get help. This is Why Don't We Know. Get updates and read more about our reporting by visiting our website, www.whydontweknow.org. We're posting new stuff all the time to help people like you better understand Why Don't We Know. Okay, let's talk big picture here for a minute to wrap this up. Head injuries can be a matter of life or death. And when that's what's at stake, you really have to wonder, why wouldn't a university want to know, for their own benefit, how big of a problem concussions are among their athletes? Why not track? Why not know if the problem is trending up or trending down? Why not know if measures and policies are effective? It seems like the approach for so many 
too many universities is just, well, you don't have to fix a problem that you don't or won't know about. But if colleges are actually serious about reducing head injuries, you can't possibly fulfill this objective without counting and tracking them. We see regularly that agencies refuse to track information that they know will look bad. In this episode, more than any other in this podcast, it appears that's what's happening at a lot of public universities. Universities with giant money-making sports programs with more than enough means to do better. Universities are historically resistant to scrutiny. We know that. And you'll hear a lot about that during this podcast. But within universities, athletic departments are especially resistant to outside scrutiny. They are especially secret. And normally, the best way to remedy that is a government regulatory agency setting rules and enforcing those rules. Something like, I don't know, the NCAA? In fact, on paper, the NCAA would be perfect for this job. After all, it was created in the early 1900s by President Teddy Roosevelt for the sole purpose of making the sport of football safer. But more than 100 years later, the NCAA says that health and safety is left up to the universities. They are trusted to police themselves. I talked to Joe about this. The NCAA has something called the Injury Surveillance Program the ISP, which began in 1982. The ISP is a data collection initiative designed to track and analyze medical illnesses and injuries resulting from sport participation. Sport-related concussions obviously fits in that description. There is also the National High School Sports-Related Injury Surveillance System Study, which is modeled after the NCAA ISP. But the problem is these programs are completely voluntary. At the college level, there is not even a requirement that a participating school send in data for every sport. So a university could choose to only submit for two or three sports per season. So you can essentially have one school send in data for football and women's volleyball in the fall, and then another send in data for men's soccer and women's soccer in the same time period. There's no set uniformity. The program is also inconsistent. It relies completely on certified athletic trainers reporting this data on a consistent basis. At the high school level, some schools cannot afford a full-time athletic trainer. So they are automatically eliminated from providing data to the surveillance program. Also, some sports, like girls' gymnastics, boys' volleyball, and girls' tennis, have been completely removed from the study. So these programs are not very effective? Overall, to answer your question, these programs have the potential to be effective. But until all schools and all sports participate, there will always be gaps in data. Of all of the explanations that we got from universities and the NCAA, no one addresses this issue. And the bottom line is, gaps in data only hurt the athletes, no one else. Just ask Caitlin. What needs to be done in your opinion? What steps do you believe need to be taken? Um, I think it needs to come from the NCAA, personally. I think it really needs to be a NCAA push for all, you know, in order to be a competitive school, in order to even play a game of football, you know, through the NCAA, you have had to complete X, Y, and Z on the concussion side. Um, I think they need to educate athletes, first of all, because athletes do not know about concussions well enough. They think of them as an ankle sprain or a headache, not as an actual brain injury. Um, coaches need to learn more. Athletic trainers need to know more. I mean, just, there needs to be a big educational push, but that needs to come, I think, from a, a 
a higher power. You know, the NCAA needs to say in order to compete at all, um, you have to have done these. I think it's just a basic care thing. Next time on Why Don't We Know. Their coach said that essentially um, the universities were talking about how the players could be used as the test subjects. We are going to go one step further into secrecy in athletics. Power differential is so profound that nobody is going to go off script. If they send a tweet or a post on Instagram, all of it's subject to scrutiny. Exploring why don't we know from the perspective of the First Amendment. Is there anything that comes up that the, that the university doesn't like, they can lose their scholarship. The, the idea that you have that level of control over an athlete is just unprecedented. There's no class of citizens, not students, not employees, frankly, not even prison inmates that has zero First Amendment protection. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam. Joseph Hastings is the main reporter. The associate producer is Tori Widden. In addition, Caitlin Todd, Evan Leepak, Dylan Walker, Christina Voltaline, Lillian Shipley, Victor Prito, Kevin Smalls, Dylan Rudolph, Kaylee Whitehead, Robert Lewis, Jake Hitt, Catherine Walsh, Natalie Morrison, Christopher Cantrell, Dylan Glicksman, Christina Sinofsky, and Brandon Uden filed public records requests for this episode. This episode was edited by Amy Fu. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by Richie Taver. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.